Thank you for tuning into Healing Race. In this video, we talk more about political correctness and what some call cancel culture, where people who say or do something that's seen as politically incorrect are punished in some way. Should we just grow a thick skin that makes us resilient at times we might feel disrespected? Or should we also change the ways in which we treat each other to bring more respect and inclusiveness to our interactions? We connect the discussion to racial history as well as the word racist itself, exploring what is and is not racist and the role that word plays as a tool for social punishment. Let's get to that conversation now. Enjoy. think we we want to like interact with each other in a way that we're just like walking on eggshells all the time um, and i think that is kind of when people talk about being pc i think mean, that's a very real trepidation yeah. uh, is what it's going to lead to so yeah. now we're all going to be people walking around on eggshells i have a friend <clears throat> who was at an event local event <clears throat> and this particular person is always like using not demeaning women, but using cuss words that that most people would you know find offensive toward women. And this person made the joke at the event, like I mean, not this person is not a professional comedian. This person was just being funny, and it's just their brand of humor, you know, this brand of humor. But it was like we are posting on our social media. It was posted to social media. And he, I mean, he's not famous, so he wasn't canceled per se, but it caused a sensation and people were offended by the joke that he said, right? And so, and that's how, that's one of the reasons I wanted to ask you the question because he said, well, then what's funny anymore? And, you know, are we moving toward walking around on eggshells? And I gave him the same spiel, as I don't know if that's offensive for me to say it, but I did, that I gave to you, hold in love, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But in the day-to-dayness of our practical lives, trying to make sense of the human experience, of which comedy is an essential tool to help us do that. Yeah. How practical is that? What do you say to the people that just say, suck it up, grow a thick skin, you yeah. know, quit yeah. being so sensitive? Yeah. Yeah, this was kind of one of the future kind of conversations with like trigger words, the idea of trigger words, right? And being triggered. And I mean, I used to, I used to teach how to change your like emotional reactions to things. So obviously there's a, there's a part of me that is sensitive to, to this idea that, Hey, if there's a degree to which you can't control what's out there, right. You can't control someone else's actions. There's something empowering about being able to say, Hey, I'm going to learn how to resolve this emotional reaction that I have. Like there's yeah. something actually empowering to what, you know, some might see as like the victim of that, of yeah. that verbalization of that, of, you know, of that trigger. So there's a sense that there is some sensitivity or some bias, some support I have for that idea. But listen, we would have no social mores. We'd have no social norms <laughs> if, if, if we didn't want to be sensitive to how we come off to other people. 
Mm-hmm. Like, should we just get rid of all of it? I mean, I don't know. Like, should I chew with my mouth open? Uh, yeah, I... No, 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 no. <laughs> we, because no, I, mean... I, I believe boundaries are healthy. I think we're also having a side conversation about boundaries, right? Yeah. And understanding what clearly your personal boundaries, when people, you know, say something that could be potentially hurtful to someone else, you want to en- enforce that boundary when you are in the room, right? Yeah. What other people do when you're not in the room is their business. Um, and I think we all have to, you know, understand how we want to show up and what, you know, what boundary we want to, you know, put in place. And do we have a responsibility to show up for other people? Like I said, when and during our break, the movie I was watching, I was not a part of the, the race that was the butt of the joke. You know, yeah. what were you doing eating nachos or whatever? But is it my responsibility to show up for, in this case, you know, Latinx people and put a boundary around that and say, hey, that's not okay, or find a different way to communicate, et cetera, like you illuminated. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, just you, something you said made me think of, so the the idea of having thick skin, Mm -hmm. I do think there should be. I, I I do think we should empower people to be able to change the way they react to things. Mm-hmm. So I do think at the very least, we should empower people, empower people to do that. I I think what's when some people say grow a, grow a thick skin. Um, one of the things I think gets lost a little bit in that is it, it there's an assumption that there's not a thick skin, mm-hmm. right? Like, for me to believe that black people in America have not developed some kind of thick skin. I mean, that just seems on its face preposterous, Mm -hmm. right? Like to endure triggers and discrimination and what you see in the pop culture environment, like to, to think that that hasn't developed some kind of resiliency mechanism. Mm -hmm. So I think just even the premise of that question loses what the black community, at least on average at large has had to experience and and how they've had to cope. It doesn't mean that the behavior itself shouldn't be stopped, moderated as well, right? You can still feel hurt. You can grow thick skin, but still in some way feel hurt. And, and, And you don't wanna get people to the point where the thick skin is like completely detaching. Like that's not a way to live where you feel you can't be in your emotions because this barrage of triggers that make you feel a certain way just keep coming at you. And, and even though you're coping and developing resiliency, you, you can't stop it, right? Um, and so, yes, I believe people should empower themselves. And I don't think that necessarily lets others off the hook. There's a you know, conservative leaning personality who's very popular, who was talking about the use of different pronouns. And, you know, he said, if someone says that I, they are, someone who's biologically male says, they want me to use the pronouns she and her, I will use it. Like, I will use it to be respectful, to be kind, to be considerate of that person. Mm-hmm. But then on the same time, he finds it problematic at a cultural level to be pressed 
to hold to that as a social norm. And I just don't understand that position. I think there's some sense in which people don't want to be forced to do something. Mm-hmm. They feel like they're being, but even if they believe it's right, even if they believe it's right. And so if you would do it in an individual conversation, why not work toward creating a different set of norms that that treat people in a way that's going to be uh, respectful of them and treat them with empathy and compassion? I just don't understand why we can't work toward that because we have some sense of like, don't force me to talk in this way. I understand the reservations about, again, about not wanting to walk on eggshells. I understand, but it's just an education process. You get feedback, right? Yeah, you, you do something that was out of bounds, but hopefully because you didn't know better, right? Someone tells you, hey, I'd like to be called she, her, even though they're biologically male. You say, okay, well, that's their experience. Okay, I, I get this. Like, let me learn. Let me learn how to be better so that I can be respectful in the public square with other people. I just don't understand why it's, you know, it's in, in some ways it's like growth thick skin on the other side, right? So you bring up a good example with that, with that, and thank you for sharing, because that's something where I do put up a boundary. I self-identify as gay and being part of LGBTQ plus community. And I know a lot of drag queens that are just awesome people, but I am very respectful to how people want to present. So whenever I'm, I refer to a person as being assigned their gender at birth, I also, sometimes that can be, you know, called like cis male, cis female is part of the pop culture parlance as well. Uh, but, you know, I reuse the pronouns or even for those who don't want to self-identify as any binary anything. I use what's in, um, you know, what they educate me to use out of sense of respect and out of a sense of wanting them to feel included and that there is a honestly is a way of holding in love their life experience yeah no that's the least i can do is use the pronoun to which you with which you want to present yeah and it's always empowering when i do that because i feel like maybe like you said the malleability i feel like i'm doing something to contribute in a positive way yeah, because you know, yeah. especially because as black people, we're often we're all we are judged a lot on how we present and how we show up in a variety of ways. Yeah. And I just I just it's my way of maybe railing against that kind of discrimination and representation. For people who think there's a moral dimension to it, I get why. It, it's a harder movement. I, I think, still think I would like to see that, obviously, but I at least can get, but for those who just don't want to pick up a new behavior, a new habit, like what, what are we really holding on to? Why hold on to it when, again, it's hurtful to people? I just don't, I just don't get that. Um, and social norms change all the time, not quickly, but they change like, throughout history. There's all sorts of things that we look back on that were norms, um, both big and small, you know, deep and shallow uh, in terms of their impacts on people that we decided to change. And we changed because we wanted, usually because we wanted to be better to one another. And we wanted like to- referring to black men as boy. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but that's very, that's all, that's how uh, anyone who's after two things were really critical for African-Americans in the trajectory of our history in this country. With, in, that's, 
white people feeling the liberty to refer to black females as girl or refer to black males as boy and also us having to use courtesy titles with mm -hmm. people who are junior than us and, and it's a very deliberate thing so one part of the psychology the psychology of control that whites often oppress black people with is to make them use courtesy titles with white children. Mm -hmm. Meaning you had to refer to a five-year-old as Miss Elizabeth or Mr. Steve, whatever. And this, and you are a 55-year-old black person, yeah. right? That is a thing, that is deliberate psychological control, right? Whatever you, even in the most, in the smallest individual, you are not acknowledged our superiority and going on the point of social norms and pivoting back to race that changed in the, in the 1960s and 70s, right? Where now black people who were senior were given the, their courtesy titles. They were referred to as Miss and Mr. or Mrs. things like that. Yeah. And it brings with it certain dignity. And there were a group of people who held on to that norm like, no, you refer to that white child who is 50 years younger than you as yeah. Miss and Mr. Yeah. And they were holding on to that. And yeah. when you say, you know, what are you holding on to? And then pivoting again back to race. Earlier in a conversation, when I brought up, I said, there is a psychology that you're asking people, and they're not always going to be transparent about it. But I believe sometimes there is a psychology you're asking people to loosen. And it's like, wait a minute, that's the bedrock of my identity. Why? I'll Because I'll, maybe I'll do that in a particular case as I see fit and necessary. But if I do it full scale, now I feel like I'm giving up something. And when I give this thing up, who will I be? Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to adds add a dimension to this conversation on the other side of this kind of black white relationship because we're talking about words and the meaning of words and how words are experienced and i i think some of the eggshells are not just that, that people feel they need to walk on are not just the material ways in which they're going to lose something, mm -hmm. right? So we talked about you know, the punishment might be is is too great to like lose your career over a misstep that you made. Um, mm -hmm. There's another kind of threat I think that looms when people feel they need to walk on eggshells, and it's the threat of reputation, mm -hmm. and it is. You know, it is definitely something to fear, be concerned with, worry about, to be called racist. If you have a sense of shame, if yeah. people don't have a sense of shame, they don't care what you call them. Sure. Yeah, if you have a sense of shame. You never fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. So I agree with that. So for those people who have a sense of shame, um, I think some of the worry some of the tiptoeing, some of the, you know, that cautious skepticism of engaging is the, is the worry about saying something 
that is going to then be perceived as as I am a racist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering what you like, where you where you stand when it comes to you know the use of that label. Uh, you know, I well, I won't say where I stand on it, um, and or you know which views I I tend to gravitate toward. But let me let me hear your your views on. The difference between racist people, racist ideas, racist policies, um, and and how you know how that label might help or hinder the ability to have these kinds of conversations and learn from one another. My feeling mm-hmm. goes back to a person's motivation because people do things wittingly and they do them unwittingly. Yeah. So you could support a policy or something that <clears throat> in its nature or, or as it's executed gives preference to one race or another, or you could execute your job in such a way that gives preference to one race or another. And that could partly be wittingly, meaning your motivation is to aggrandize one race over another and make sure it has the support it needs to remain aggrandized, or it could be unwittingly because you're just living in a framework and living the framework that you know um, or afraid to challenge it. So I see it as nuanced. I think that label is a real label what I mean by real, that it's warranted because there are people out there who make deliberate decisions in their lives to aggrandize one race over another. Yeah. Um, and people use that word because people sometimes say I'm racist against white people and I'm not. But because I think that it, it also pres- implies a power dynamic. So their disliking people is very different than having the mechanism and the means and the power to keep people in an underclass. That's a very, very different thing. Disliking people, maybe that's not so good. And maybe you think white people are better than black people and that it would be a racist notion. Mm -hmm. But when you couple that, with, or like, let's say the reverse, you're a black person who dislikes white people, but it doesn't become activated in my personal view without power. Mm-hmm. And when you have the annals of power, that's when you can take what was once a notion and turn it into a full-fledged motivation with velocity. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a question. If I'm because I'm trying to understand your concept and where it applies and where it doesn't. Sure. In your positions in your career, in the trajectory of career, your career, have you ever had staff that were? I've never managed people. Well, let's say that you, so let's say you're promoted tomorrow and you have staff, which then creates some kind of supervisor subordinate relationship right understand (laughs) 
if your dislike of white people led you to be biased in who you gave positions on your team to, would those be racist actions? This would is a fictitious. First of all, this is fictitious. I do. I'm. I'm not racist against. Yeah, white I'm not saying that you are. I'm. I'm, just, I'm, I'm. I'm trying to under. I'm just trying to really understand. Like, yes. what are the cases in which you feel you feel the label is warranted? When you're deliberately withhold. So in your scenario, I'm going to address your scenario. I come first of all. I come from a very deep corporate background. So, and I mean, I I have been in very deep in very large organizations. Um, it it becomes a racist action when you're deliberately withholding support uh, to a group of people, whether in, and it often occurs in nuanced ways, whether it's support on a project, whether it's support in mentoring, whether it's support in training. And one of the ways in which it occurs is asymmetrical information making sure people are in the know about certain things that they need to know. what you say? What did you say, Todd? You don't know what you don't know? Yeah. Well, there are some people who do know what you don't know yeah. and they deliberately make sure you continue not knowing it. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. Mm -hmm. So in the scenario, it would be, like I wanna, so not even saying, that you would be a racist person, but you would be engaging in a racist action if you withheld support, opportunity, information um, in some kind of asymmetric way where an, some group of people did not have that support, opportunity, yeah. information. This is a real thing. Then this is not even fictitious. I know we're modeling the scenarios if I were the manager, but this is a real, like, real, real thing that happens to Black people in large organizations. I'm not saying it's it's happened to me expressly, yeah. but boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, yeah. my friends have stories. And yeah. it's like, sometimes I have to physically like close my mouth. I'm like, that happened to you? Like, and, and, and it is, it's asymmetrical information. Mm -hmm. You make sure the people who, who you want to support based on their race, have the information that they need to know. And you make sure that the people who you don't want to advance based on their race, continue not knowing what they don't know. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, it's real. This is real. Mm -hmm. It's real. Okay. So, so you, whatever power that one has in society, so strip away race for a second. Um, not, not strip away race, but strip away the idea this could only happen on one side or another. If you have a certain kind of power, broadly, even in your small little context, if you are using that power in some way that is biased based on your views of differences between groups of people, that is, you are engaging in racism of some kind. In my, in my personal opinion, yes. It could be something as let's say, let's say I'm a parking attendant and I know that parking will be free as of a certain time. So you don't need to pay for that extra time, right? Yeah. And I tell this to a, a black family, but I don't tell it to a white family. Or let's say I'm a white man and I tell this 
bit of information to a white family, but I let the black family pay for time that they know they don't need, increasing the profit of the organization to which I either own or I work, right? That is racist. You've just exploited a group of people based, based upon their race mm -hmm. by, didn't, by not giving them information that would have dramatically changed the outcome of an event. So I, I hear, I heard you kind of delineate between three types of people. Um, I, I heard you delineate someone who's proactive in their, in, in how their stereotypical attitudes, they're, they're proactive in, in discriminating, right? In, the witting people. Yeah, the witting people, right? Yes, the then, witting. There, then there's people who might be witting, who, who might have knowledge, but they, they're, they're simply not engaging in changing something, right? But they themselves are not perpetuating it, right? So there's the people mm -hmm. who, who have some awareness, I said, but, mm -hmm. but are just not acting as allies, advocates, whatever you know words one might want to use, right? They're not trying to change the system uh, proactively. Mm -hmm. And then there's people who are just unwitting, right? They just don't know. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they don't know. Um, and you know, I've heard you earlier express some level of understanding for the latter two categories in terms of like we live busy you know one of your kind of mantras last conversation was like we live busy lives like what can we expect people to do like we we, we have hopes right we have hopes of the way that people are going to engage in the world seek to know one another seek to change you know make rights wrong wrongs right um seek to change policies and structure that, that was my desire to try to understand all sides of the of the possible argument yeah yeah and when it comes to racism itself, that is in that class of categories of witting people who use their power. So when you when you have some level of power, you then have a certain responsibility in the way that you, you know, implement that power, execute that power, such that you sh if if you disadvantage groups in certain ways, information, resources, support, opportunities, uh, you are then engaging in racist behavior. In my personal opinion, yes. Thank you for watching this episode of Healing Race and stay with us for a scene from our next video. If you wanna see more conversations like the one you just watched, please subscribe to our channel, share this video with friends and family and like and comment on the video below. If you'd like to be a guest on one of our episodes and have an open, real conversation about race, email us at guests at healingraceshow.com. And if there are topics you think we should cover, we'd love to hear them. So please email your ideas to topics at healingraceshow.com. As always, thanks for your support. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Now, here's a scene from our next Healing Race. Yeah, I would love to know what the African American community um, what what do they think um is the fair way to put put the past of uh behind you know and and focus uh exclusively on a not exclusively that's not going to happen that's not necessary but to focus more on the future of us um i would like to know what they feel about that my questions would be again if something happens 20 hours away, what does that have anything to do with me? Why is it that the Black community will outcast you 
for being a police officer? Why is it that you don't want to see someone in uniform that looks like you? Um, and I say that because I've lost friends or acquaintances, I guess my real friends or my friends. But why is it that I lost friendships simply because of the job that I chose to do? Mm. Wait a minute, people stop being friends with you because you're a cop? Oh, absolutely. Rude, 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 rude. Absolutely. Oh um, my God. You know, I always hear people saying we need to talk about this, you know, and from both sides saying we need to talk about this more and get it out in the open and just be more honest with each other and in these discussions the way y'all are doing here. Um, but then at the same time, if if you do speak up sometimes, then you get, you know, you might get jumped on or hollered you know, at. Yes. And so that's not, so the way y'all are doing, the way you're approaching it here seems like ideal, but why my question in a larger way is why can't more people approach this conversation the way you're doing it here? I, I do tend to ask other groups, like not just, oh, did you talk about diversity? Did you talk about race in your household? I literally now ask people, what did you learn about black people? Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Like, what did you learn about Black people growing up in your school, in your community, in your household, in whatever?